Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Linda O'Haran. It's her first podcast. I'm so honored. She has rehomed 89 animals. She has compassion for animals and others. We had a heart to heart after I spoke with her husband. Linda, welcome. Is this the first podcast you've been on? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yay, that's <laughs> fun. Okay, so me and your husband got into some pretty deep conversation on our call. I'm sure you did. Yes. How did you guys meet? We were both working in London. Funny enough, when you're in a diff- any other country, when you hear someone with an American accent, you all almost immediately start talking just because you feel an instant connection. But we we met through a mutual friend back in those days. If you had an, a dog or something, you had to put them in quarantine for six months uh, because England doesn't have rabies. So my dog was in quarantine and someone that worked for Bill had a dog in quarantine and she and I would take that little bus out to Heathrow airport on the weekends and started chatting and that and met that way. And then she introduced me actually to Bill. She kind of set up a blind date, but I didn't realize that we were actually on a date. I thought we were just all going out for drinks, but Bill insists that it was a blind date. (laughs) So that was our first meeting, but you know, then it was just a, you know, over a period of time, meeting up on occasion here and there. And then eventually there was one point where we really sat down and, and talked and connected. The rest is history. It's interesting that animals were part of your first date and that you have rehomed mm-hmm. 89 animals. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's something that I'm passionate about and, and Bill has supported. So, you know, being a good husband, he He supports my passions. I try to support his passions, things like that. Where did your love of animals begin? I mean, I guess, honestly, I think it's probably innate. Maybe my dad was a bit of a dog whisperer. You know, he was always good with animals. But I I just think it's just something that I've always felt. And, you know, our girls are very animal oriented. Uh, It's just, they're innocent and they're vulnerable. And I, I just feel for that. Yeah. So tell me about your childhood and your dog whisperer daddy. You know, my mother is Japanese. And so I'm obviously half Japanese as an only child being raised by, you know, my mother who did not speak English as a first language and obviously learned it. So it creates a non-standard American upbringing, especially back in those days post-war and things like that, where, you know, if you're an an immigrant back in the 60s, you're trying very much to assimilate versus maintain your culture. You know, I was an only child, grew up in a small suburban area, very middle, middle middle-class family, and pretty simple upbringing. Did you want siblings? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. There's certain parts of being an only child that make it complicated in terms of understanding things like sharing food off of your 
plate, you know, which Bill for, for him, it's, it's, it's a free for all, you know, it's like, Oh, that looks really good. Let me get it. And for me, I was like, what? So you're taking food off of my plate, you know, that kind of thing, just strange little things, but you know, having siblings can be complicated too. But I think, you know, when you're an only child, it's nice if you had some other people there. And it's also interesting that you met him kind of like in an exploratory phase of his life. Like, yeah. Talk to yeah. me about who he was when you met him. Well, I will say one of the things that I bring this up often when people say, well, why, why did you choose Bill? Why was Bill the one? Bill is just a get things done kind of guy. There were a few instances we were out with a group of people and we were in Piccadilly Circus and the bars closed. People are just pouring out of the bars, right? Just there's so many people around. And in the U.S., that would seem like an ideal time, you know, for cabs to be available. Oh, people are pouring out of the bars. The tube station is closed. All these cabs were, you know, in the U.S., they'd be like, well, that's the optimal time to have those Ubers or cabs out there. Of course, there weren't Ubers back then, but to be out there and, and working because people need cabs at that time. But in England, it was time to go home. They were done for the day. So you would see all these cabs and they have their, uh, their off-duty signs on. And I literally was standing there thinking, I'm never getting home. I'm never getting home. Because there, there's, there are hundreds of people out there and no cabs. And Bill's like, it's okay, I'll get a cab. So he surveyed the terrain. He saw that you know there, the masses of people were over here and he went this other way. And sure enough, here he comes, like the cavalry, with a cab. He's like, and there are hundreds of people trying to get a cab. Bill got the cab, right? So then we're in the cab, we're driving, and someone's like, oh, so now all the bars are closed. We don't have any beer. We can't get any beer. And Bill's like, no, 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 we'll be able to get beer. So we drive along, and he's like, here, pull over here for a second. There was a place that was open. He goes in there. He comes out of this bar like Santa with a bag of beers over his shoulder. And I just thought, you know, now we're talking about getting home from a bar and going and getting beer, right? It, it, insignificant things. But it just, I looked at him and I thought, you know, this is a guy that gets things done. Like if the ship is going down, be by Bill, you know? And I just felt like that was a, a quality. And even I've told my daughters, you know, whoever you're going to be with, it's got to be somebody that can get up at first and get back down. Someone that can see things through, you know, even when things get hard, just go ahead and press on through and accomplish that goal. And I, I just feel like Bill is that kind of person. I just admired that quality in him. And I, I think that really struck me as, wow, this is a guy, this is the guy I really want to get to know. I love that. Get up Everest and get back down. That is great dating advice. <laughs> Thanks. I feel like, especially with young kids these days, with helicopter parents and bulldozer parents and all those things that they push the obstacles out of the way, you know, obstacles are how you get through. Learning how to persevere is probably one of the most important things these kids need to know how to do, whether it's in their work or just in any complications that come up in their lives. And certainly on the topic of marriage, how to persevere through that. If you're able to stop and quit that easily, 
on so many other aspects of your life, why would you persevere in a relationship? What have you persevered through? Tell me about some of your complications. Oh, God. Well, I mean, I think, you know, my parents weren't wealthy. They provided very nicely. We had a very nice living, but it wasn't like I had a, a, a spare credit card in my pocket. Of course, back in those days, that wasn't how things were done. I, I have to say, probably it's a bit of an embarrassing one, but one instance where I'm just like, okay, this, I, I really need to evaluate how I'm doing things. I was living in New York City. And back in those days, you would get subway tokens, right? The, the metal tokens and not a Metro card. You know, I lived large. I went out to dinner all the time. I had oh, so many shoes, all that kind of stuff like that. And I was getting paid the next day. And I realized, oh, wait, I have one subway token left. And I needed to get back to work the next day. And I literally, at that time, whatever the price was, which was next to nothing, I didn't have that amount of money which was like less than a dollar. I didn't have a dollar to my name. So I was working in Midtown and, and I lived on the Upper East Side and I literally thought, okay, well, I need to get back to work tomorrow and look decent. So I, I'm in heels, but I've got to walk home. I just got to walk home. So I had my token for the next day, but it was a great life lesson because I was never shy of tokens again. You know, I made sure that I always had plenty of tokens, things like that. It just, you know, so it's not like a major accomplishment, but it's one of those things where like, I think these days it would be like, mom, could you Venmo me some money? I'm so sorry. I'll pay you back tomorrow or whatever. It was so personally embarrassing that I thought, well, I'm not going to ask anybody else for this. I'm just going to walk home. I got to sort it out myself. There were also, you know, in terms of persevering through situations, when I first moved to New York, I was attacked and escaped that attack. Somebody heard me late at night and literally a few weeks later, someone was following me. I'd gotten on the platform in Midtown and I just had that strange feeling that someone was just flanking me. So I stood there and I moved on the platform so that I would get on in a different space. And the person kind of moved with me. And when the train stopped, I thought, okay, well, here's this door here. I went and I got in a different door and sure enough, he went to that other door and I thought, okay, this is definitely somebody following me. Stupidly, I did get off at my stop, but I knew, but I waited to the last moment, then jumped off, he jumped off. And then I just stood there on the platform Looking at the token guys, people went around me. He kind of mulled around behind me for a little while. And I thought, well, what are you going to do? I'm just, I'm just standing there. There's other people there. He finally went out an exit. So I went out kitty corner and came out there and, and just stood there. And, I, and he finally, he turned around and saw me. And I'm like, what are you going to do? You know, I, I know you're following me. What are you going to do? He finally mulled around. He, he walked off. I went into a little coffee shop and sat down in there and ordered a cup of coffee. And back in those days, 35 years ago, smoking, you know, and I sat in the window like this. And sure enough, he went back downtown. And I thought, I'm a moving target. I'd just been attacked. I was little, you know, I was 30 pounds lighter, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that, so I, I think I was an easy mark, but after that, I'm like, you know what, Linda, you got to toughen up here. And I, I finally, after that, whenever there was an incident like that, I, 
I just tried to take it head on. And I think that that was my initiation to being a true New Yorker at that time. Is after that, it's like, what are you going to do? And then I was never bothered again. Wow. Yeah. New York (laughs) seems intimidating. It is until you stop looking naive. And then when you're kind of bobbling around as though you're, you're not from there, there's a vibration that emanates from you. And once you toughen up, then you just don't seem to have the problems again. Speaking of vibrations, do you Uh meditate with your husband? Has he gotten you on the bandwagon? You know, he, yes and no. Uh, We don't necessarily do it together. We have a series of exercises that we do. We don't do it every day together, but there are a series that we often do together that involves a breathing, some twisting, some different, and sort of activating every part of your body and then sitting together. So we do that, but we don't necessarily do all of that together. And I, I definitely don't do it as often as he does. Ironically, years ago when I was pregnant, I had, I was always awake in the middle of the night and I'd see these documentaries, like something on Nova, all these different things like that. And I, and the next day I'd be like, oh my God, I learned this and blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, so it was, it was actually kind of amazing. Some of the most amazing things I learned were at like three in the morning watching Nova or something. And one of them was on meditation and I, Bill is much more spiritual in the sense of pulling from other. And I'm, I'm a scientific person. Science is how my brain works. But this was a study using ER doctors. They had a control group that they just let, let stay as is. They had another group that was meditating 30 minutes a day. And then a group that wasn't working, that were, was off duty. And they put a little chemical burn on their arms tried to see how meditating would affect a chemical burn on your arm, your healing mechanism. The people that didn't meditate and were in this high stress environment, their burn was slow to heal. The people that meditated 30 minutes a day, their burn healed much more quickly. The summary of that, when you are in a stress environment, you know, that's that fight or flight mechanism in your body, all of that adrenaline is adrenaline is going towards your flight mechanism, which is the survival mechanism, not towards digestion, healing, anything like that. Because if you're a gazelle on the plane, it doesn't matter if you're digesting, if you're going to get eaten, you need all your flight mechanism. By being in that high stress environment all the time, things like personal healing, your body considers that to be secondary. But by meditating for 30 minutes a day, which isn't really a whole lot of time, you were able to create enough of a calming effect to stimulate that healing process the same way as somebody that wasn't working. For me, that kind of information was concrete. That was like, that's a scientific documentation that meditation actually doesn't, it's not pulling from the ether. It's nothing that is debatable or whatever. It's a, it's a factual scientific thing. So I meditate. I I will admit that I often do it when I'm stressed or when I'm feeling that I need to be centered, you know, and often Bill and I talk about it, that he's like, you know, that's great, but sometimes you need to meditate when you're not stressed. You may have some greater insights with that versus just, you know, when you're stressed out. However, 
I will say that when I have either been stressed or unhappy in some form or another, sitting quietly has really created some profound messages for me. One of them in particular, when I was really feeling at a point in time when, you know, my mother went through an Alzheimer's scenario, you know, there were, there was a lot going on, very little to do with me. It was either in serving the kids and their needs, which obviously is important, or taking care of my mother and Bill and everything like that. And I had very little me time. And that actually was you know, a period of time where I sat and really just needed to decompress was a source of my greater inspiration to spend more time with my rescue animals and putting more out there in terms of helping animals and making that more of a a mission for myself in my life. That's really beautiful that that came to you by being still with yourself. Yeah, I think it's just my feeling, but I feel that when you sit quietly, that's when really what whatever it was that was turning inside of me was given an opportunity to come to the surface. But it's just like, what does Linda want? You know, what do I want to do? You you get this time on this earth. What what's going to fill my soul? Give me a sense of purpose. For me, it's you know giving back to creatures that can't help themselves. So and that fills my soul. That gives me joy, gives me purpose, you know, with whatever amount of time I have, that gives me a sense of satisfaction. Can you tell me like a couple of the rescues that have touched your soul? Oh, they all do. There are some heartbreaking ones too, that are really hard to think about this last puppy that just left two days ago. He was a sole survivor of a bag of four puppies that were thrown in the garbage at probably about a day old, very, very small, thrown in the garbage. Someone heard them, found them. One died right away. And I I just deal with the emergent, sort of the medical neonate, you know, the orphan puppies or pregnant dogs. So I said, okay, I'll take two. Normally you split them up in pairs. One had died already. So I took all three. Two looked really rough already, you know, when I got them. So it was really they were all touch and go and only one survived, but that dog, you know, was just the sweetest thing. And he went to a lovely family and it's a bittersweet thing because it's, it's wonderful that that dog survived, but I I feel so, you know, it, it hurts my heart when those other ones that, you know, they were, they weren't garbage. They just get, why, why somebody does something like that instead of just dropping them off at a fire station or a rescue, you know, and there's so many other avenues that could have been at a grocery store. I mean, anywhere where people could have done, you know, the, how little must you think of life to just take innocent creatures and throw them in the garbage. And I try to make sure that like the kids in our neighborhood play with, you know, get to bottle feed these babies and things like that, because you just want them to understand the value of life and the, and the, the positive aspects of nurturing. And I think that how, you know, how badly must have you been treated or how badly, how low is your self-esteem that you, you can't value the life of another creature? You know, I, I think things like that roll downhill. If you don't feel good about yourself, why are you then going to help some innocent creature? You're just going to 
kick them, shoot them, do whatever, you know, I mean, there's, you know, all kinds of terrible things that happen, but, you know, you wonder what the mentality is of that and what, what the self-esteem and the, you know, the qualities of that person that, that actually decided that throwing them in the garbage was the right thing to do. Have you seen animals that have been shot? Oh yeah. Shot where their back legs are paralyzed and they're dragging themselves down the side of a road and somebody, you know, it's all kinds of another puppy a couple of days ago, somebody rescued it uh, and brought it into the shelter because they were riding their bikes and dragging the puppy by the neck, you know, because couldn't keep up. It's unbelievable. You really, it really is. It's unreal. Um, I heard too from someone off a Craigslist that sometimes people like look for, you know, families that are looking to replace or rehome their animals and they take animals and abuse them. That actually scared me. You know, there was a point in, in my life, I think when I was younger, it's almost like I couldn't look at that. And so I had to push that, that thought away because it was just too much to handle emotionally. And it really is too much for me even now. I mean, there's, you know, all over the globe of, you know, animal abuse and, and things like that. But I just uh, resigned myself that I can't save everything, but I can save that one, you know, and, and that's what I focus on is just, just take what, take what you can, save that one, save that next one, save the next one and launch them into the world as best you can. I mean, that's all you can do. And if enough people do that one or that two, then, you know, it, it can make a bigger impact. Have the animals and you caring for the animals made an impact with your children? Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They're all eco warriors. <laughs> so, my oldest, she is, she's a fierce feminist eco warrior. My middle one is looking to go to veterinary school. And my youngest is just a natural dog whisperer and she's got a real knack for it. So they're all very environmentally conscious, you know, animal. They're all vegetarians as well, for the most part, vegan. Bill, not so much all the time. He tries. (laughs) That's interesting. How do you feel about the fact that your husband was like, you know, managing hedge funds and these big financial accounts and then became a licensed therapist. I met him when he was in the financial industry and being in New York, everyone's in the fin- connected with the financial industry there. He went through sort of in his self-realization period and it's really hard to step off that boat, you know, if you've been on that boat for a long time, but I could see that it was it was killing him. Of course, he's gone back and forth. You know, the financial industry does in terms of paying the bills and paying for college. Of course, it's very beneficial. There are aspects of reality is that we want our kids to get an education. We want to pay for that education. And and we like nice things too, you know, and, and we're not martyrs in that. So, you know, life is a balance of feeding your soul, feeding your heart and providing to the level that's necessary or that's desired. I don't think there's anything wrong with being comfortable, but being respectful of humanity and and nature and things like that at the same time, you know, needs to come into play as well. Also, I'm interested in your thoughts around his justice work and working with inner city kids. Wow. I, you know, honestly, I don't think 
he was ever, I can't think of a happier time for him uh, or more emotionally fulfilling time for Bill than when he was working with those kids and his ability to connect with taking those kids. There was, I don't know if he had talked to you about a time when he took them skiing. We took a big group of kids. I can't, I don't remember how many, a large number of inner city kids skiing. But the beautiful thing about that was they had to understand how to check into a hotel, how to behave in the hotel, how to behave in the restaurant, how to get, you know, and in, in, in terms of, you know, the, the sort of societal etiquette of how to do that, how to do these, some of these kids have never done, you know, that sort of thing. And so it was really enriching and they had, and they were doing something physical versus being on a computer or, you know, things like that, getting fresh air, being out in nature. I know that it was a lot of work, but he really felt good about it. And the kids really enjoyed it. You know how Bill is. He, he has a genuine desire to understand your story. And so he, he was able to connect with kids on a profound level. Do you feel like he's been able to connect with your children in the same way? Well, that's always harder in the sense that, you know, it's your dad. It's a yes and a no, because I think the hard part of parenting is that you're not their friend, you're the parent. And it means you're on your phone too much, you're on the computer too much. You know, those are things that sometimes don't make you your kid's friend, but it serves them well in the long run. And to the extent that my oldest daughter, she was, you know, she's a fiery character, which means that she was a t- kind of a tough kid. But she had a few years back had said to Bill, you know, I hated when you would make me sit up straight constantly on me about this and that. It's, but as a young adult, she was out to dinner with some other people and saw some really bad table manners. And she's like, oh, okay, I get it now. I get it. Why, you know, why you did those things. So yeah, I think that sometimes those, the lessons that you know are important to learn for a young child are the ones that they want to hear. But as young adults, they start to appreciate those lessons. Well, have you figured out who you want to be? You know, our hope dream is to combine the two things is to have this space where I can work with animals and bring animals to be a sort of a place where other types of animals can come as well. And also having a place where senior dogs can go. People often, you know, get rid of dogs that have issues or they're getting old, which is just devastating to me that, you know, when your animal gets old and it's been with you for a number of years that because they're old, People just kind of let them go, which, you know, I, what a lesson does that teach your kids? You know, when, when, when something's old or not as useful any longer that you can just something to discard. So, you know, we want to have a space where I can work with a myriad of different types of animals, but also have a place that can potentially be a retreat in terms of a couple's retreat, that sort of thing, where you can work on your relationship and meditate, maybe do some yoga and maybe go feed some chickens and just relax and regroup and connect. You know, that would be, that would be the ideal. 
That is so cool. I've never heard of a retreat where you can work on your relationship and be around chickens. <laughs> well, I just had this idea that I'm like, God, my ideal day would be I get up in the morning. Of course, I got got to have my coffee. I have my my dog that has a lot of issues, emotional issues that I work with all the time and take Panda out. We run out and we go get some fresh eggs, um, maybe pick a couple of tomatoes and come in and make breakfast and then go, you know, go feed the animals, maybe go ride a horse, you know, go do all those things and just spend time, not, I wouldn't say living off the land, but kind of being less about, I don't care about going and getting my nails done. And there's nothing wrong with that if somebody loves to do that, you know, whatever fills your soul. But for me personally, I don't, I don't, you know, it's not necessary. Do you think that there's better dogs for children? Let's start from the beginning of the doggy story. Yeah. So she was a emaciated rescue that was pregnant that came in from outside of the Austin area. In order for her to come to Austin, someone has to be a dedicated foster. I volunteered to take her. She came in with eight puppies, I guess about a week old puppies. She was just a brown pit bull, you know, nothing special looking about her. So I thought, well, okay, we'll probably have this one for a while. But she was a lovely, sweet thing. You always want to proceed with caution. When you start to handle a dog's puppies, regardless of the breed or size, you know, it's it's a mother dog that wants to make sure that her puppies are safe. So it's always a very, you know, that first couple of days to try to just be as non-invasive as possible and bond with her as a dog. But from the get-go, she was very sweet, understood that that we were there to help her. So I just assume, of course, they're going to go first and we'll have her for, you know, however long. But they all went up for adoption at the same time, the puppies and the mom. And the mother was adopted first. And, and the people that came... They were dog knowledgeable. So they came, they had their two, two young boys sitting down and the father came and touched the dog all over. So from the face down the ears and gently just watched for her reaction, like down her spine, down her tail, picked up her paws, everything like that to just gauge her reaction. If she were to pull away or whatever, you would see that, okay, well, that's something we need to explore a little further. But literally the dog, she, he manipulated her all over and she was totally fine with it, very relaxed. So then they, you know, sat their children down and said, okay, well now, you know, let the dog come. Don't get in its face. Don't touch the dog. Let the dog come to you. She sat down and they were, you know, smelled them. They were able to pat her and, and everything like that. And she was very friendly, wagging her tail and showing all the signs of engagement. I felt really good about the chances of this being a successful adoption because it was a really knowledgeable parents that were guiding these kids on how, how to behave around a dog that they don't know. Give the dog some space, set it up for the best chance for success. You know, don't get right in that dog's face. Don't, don't do all those things to frighten it because it doesn't know you. Any dog shouldn't be treated in that way in the beginning. Now they've had this dog for a year and a half 
and you know send videos and and pictures periodically and it's it was you know it was such a sweet successful story and it's on the couch with their kids and and things like that so you know when it comes to as we were talking about before with breed specifications and that just thinking you know just everything needs to be approached with an open mind in a conscientious way of behaving around any breed and, and any dog and then judge it based on the, the specific dog versus uh, necessarily the breed. I think it's also really interesting that there's like a whole community around rescue and around the love of animals. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah. Well, funny enough, my dog, you have to see him. Okay. This is my boy here. Come here, bud. That's my dog, Panda. Come here, bud. Hi, Panda. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The first doggy on my podcast. Hi. <laughs> You're so cute. He's the best. He's my baby. I love this dog. He's the sweetest thing, but you can see he's a very unusual looking dog. And so that created some issues with him when he was younger because people just get in his face. So he became reactive and I was less educated on how to behave around a reactive dog. And I wasn't advocating for his space. So he would lunge and do all of those things. And it took a lot of training to get him to calm down a lot of training for him and a lot of training for me to say, you know what? And it's, it's unbelievable that there are people that, that come up and it's like, can I pet your dog? And I'm like, no, he really doesn't like strangers. And they're like, well, I think I can pet him. And, and not in a hostile way, but almost arguing to the fact that they should be able to pet my dog. And I'm like, no, he really, he really does. If, if he wants you to pet him, he will be wagging his tail and he will come up to you. But if he's standing calmly, it's because I've trained him that I'm going to advocate for his space and, and ensure that he doesn't have to succumb to that, you know, like not every dog wants to be everybody's friend. You know, part of working with animals with rescues is just understanding that, you know, not, not every dog is a golden retriever. They don't want to, they don't want to be everybody's friend and that's okay. He loves us and he loves the people that he knows and gets to know, but he doesn't have to be your best friend or, you know, otherwise. And so we need to support them. We need to take care of the creatures that we created. So I just, you know, whatever little bit we can to, to help promote it. So Panda has his own Instagram. Um, What's Panda's Instagram? <laughs> Cowdog Panda. He has this condition of reactivity that we have to, had to work through. And I work with him every day. Um, but the great thing about that is that there are a lot of people trying to deal with their reactive dogs. A lot of people get rid of their reactive dogs, so, you know, relinquish them or put them down. But there's a big community of people that are trying to help their dogs get through it. And Panda, who was severely reactive, has really come through it. And he's a happy dog we understand Panda, we understand what he can and cannot tolerate. And he understands what he can and cannot do. You can't bite people, you know, that's just a hard no. You can't attack other dogs, you know, it's a hard no. And those are the lessons we need to teach him. And also, I need to learn how to advocate for his space. But it was a painful, painful, long process, a lot of tears, a lot of heartache. 
and a lot of despair to the extent that I, I literally thought I might have to have his teeth removed or I needed to be isolated, you know, isolate him. And, um, but we got through it and with his Instagram, actually it's, it, we've, you know, connected with a lot of other people that have reactive dogs and, you know, I'm grateful that his story has helped other people. Cow it's dog panda story. forever. <laughs> That's so sweet. Well, my dad is a dog lover, so he is going to love this episode. We'll let people know how they can connect with you and find you. In terms of animals, it's mostly through Panda's Instagram. People have reached out to me and it's cowdog.panda. Okay, awesome. Well, I have loved connecting with you. Thank you for your patience. It's so nice to meet you. You too, you too. switch it over to grandpa. Very interesting story. This is a girl that is just full of compassion, not only for uh, her daughters, not only for her mother, and obviously uh, has found the right partner. And I love the qualities that really made it stick out. She wanted to be with someone that doesn't roll over very easily. Someone who is solid. Someone who, if the going gets tough, they don't give up. They don't throw in the towel. And isn't that what we really all need in a partner or in a mate is that there's always going to be differences, but somebody that will always stick it out and fight every cause with you no matter what. And that's what a real strong relationship building is all about. It's actually really good to think about, right? Like what sparks something in you in another person. I agree a hundred percent. And what's also very interesting is that she, you know, also comes from uh, not an abnormal situation, but a mixed culture situation where there's always at at times uh, when that happens, there's going to be a possible identity crisis that you have to face. And in her case, extra understanding And compassion is what came out of it. And not only did she spread that to humans, but she had a love to spread that with all life, all walks of life, where she goes out of her way to rescue animals as well that are also mistreated. And where she must have said it three times, some animals are just thrown in the garbage where people just don't have any caring, but uh, no caring for for, for life whatsoever. And I think she was hinting and that, that there's a lot of people out there that don't give a darn, not only about animals and caring for them, but also about people. That people can also be very cruel and not very understanding. Elderly, animals, children, people that can be a little different. She doesn't think that that's a cause to throw them in the garbage. And look how many times a person who gets older and is unable to be the way they were when they were young and they need some help. A lot of uh, people just want to dismiss it and say, hey, it's just too much trouble. We, we don't want to bother. You're, you're putting too much of a, a burden on our lives. And yet, usually a mother or father has gone through tremendous sacrifice to not only make the children, 
but to raise them and to give them every opportunity. And you would like to think that a child to take care of their parents is really not only not a burden, but it's really an honor. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 